Chapter 4 of Nequa, or The Problem of the Ages. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Nequa, or The Problem of the Ages, by Jack Adams. Chapter 4 A Singular Discovery. Part 1. Houston stepped upon the elevator and descended to the ship to carry out the instructions he had received, while Captain Gano and myself remained in the observatory to scan the surface more critically and map out the route we must travel. So far as we could discover, there seemed to be no serious obstacle in the way. The surface between us and the sand ridge which Battelle must cross had the appearance of a level plain of snow or ice with numerous hummocks scattered here and there. Beyond this, the ridge, with some lofty elevations, filled the outlines of the picture. The point which Battelle had selected for crossing was a gap in this ridge. Directly below the gap, the ridge was very steep, but the top could be reached from this point by an easy incline towards the south. I made a hasty sketch of every prominent object on a direct line from the observatory to the gap, which was the point we desired to reach as soon as possible, as we felt that our assistance was sorely needed. This work was completed to our satisfaction when we noticed the crew with the sledge coming around the north side, and we hastened down to meet them at the foot of the mountain on the east. We found everything in good shape for a rapid march. The sledge was lightly loaded with such appliances, ropes, pulleys, etc., as had been deemed necessary to enable us to render the most effectual assistance. The dogs were pulling on their harness as if anxious for a run, and the men were fresh and feeling the need of exercise. The thaw had scarcely commenced, and the traveling was good. Every condition seemed favorable. Captain Gano and myself led off along the route which our observations had indicated as the most practicable. In less than two hours, we had reached the foot of the ridge just below the gap where we had discovered Captain Battelle. We found the surface covered with volcanic ashes and scoria, and our minds instantly reverted to the earthquake which broke up the ice field and our narrow escape from destruction. However, this was no time for speculation. Our business was to reach the top as soon as possible. We found that a direct ascent would be exceedingly difficult, but that the inclining shelf along the face of the ridge would enable us to reach the top at a point about a half mile south of the gap. The shelf or bench was several yards in width, and its appearance, covered as it was with ashes, gave the impression that it had been a level shoreline that in some great convulsion of nature had been tilted up from the south at an angle of about 25 degrees, and that the general surface had been leveled up by a subsequent deposit over the lower part. We at once began our ascent along this comparatively easy route, yet it was a tedious and toilsome effort to get the sledge with its load of necessary appliances to the top. However, within less than an hour, notwithstanding numerous resting spells, we reached the top and found ourselves on a level plateau, several hundred feet wide, and about one-half mile south of where we expected to find Captain Battelle and his comrades. While our party halted in order to give the dog team a rest, 
Captain Gano and myself hurried on to the gap. On reaching the edge, we discovered that the men were taking a rest after having lifted most of the contents of the sledge to the top. We could see that they had been compelled to cut a road through some hundreds of feet of frozen ashes in order to reach their present position, and we did not need to be told that they had been having a very hard time. Most of the party were asleep, and no one observed our approach until we had descended into the gap, and Captain Gano had called out in regular sailor style the familiar ship ahoy. This unexpected greeting brought Captain Battelle to his feet, but for a moment he was too much surprised to make any response. Recovering himself, he advanced and grasped Captain Gano by the hand, exclaiming, How did you get here? I was just thinking how fortunate it would be if you knew the predicament we are in and would come to our relief with a capstan and some more ropes and pulleys. That is just what we have done, said Captain Gano. Jack was on the lookout for you from his observatory on top of the mountain of ice that covers the resting place of the Ice King. As soon as we discovered you, we started to your relief with a sledge load of such appliances as it seemed you most needed. This is indeed fortunate, said Battelle. We are almost exhausted with the efforts we have been compelled to make in order to reach this gap, and now that we are here, we find that our difficulties are by no means ended, and it is most important that we should get well over the ridge and commence our exploration of the western portion of this vast island of ashes and ice. As he was speaking, our sledge appeared at the top of the gap and the men joined us at once. Houston, acting as spokesman for our Norwegian sailors, said Leif and Eric request that they be permitted to complete the work of transferring the sledges and their loads to the west side. Tell them, said the captain, to go ahead in their own way and accept our thanks for their most welcome services. In a few minutes they had their ropes, pulleys, and capstan in place, and gave us to understand that the dogs would furnish all the power that was needed. They soon had one of the sledges slowly but surely gliding up the steep incline to the top. We watched them a few minutes when Captain Gano said, I think we can safely leave this matter to the Norwegians, and we may start on our return to the ship. I am willing to trust them, said Battelle, and it is important that we begin at once to compare notes and lay our plans for the future. I feel that there is no time to be lost and giving some instructions to Brown, who had been selected as foreman in the work of road-making, to give such assistance as might be needed, we started on foot for the ship, a distance of between five and six miles. On our way back, Battelle gave us a concise account of his observations and the conclusions at which he had arrived. When we left the ship, he said, we took a southeasterly direction. The cold was intense, but with our ample preparations, we did not suffer so much as might have been expected. We reached open water within three days, but the shoreline was so precipitous that we could not launch our sledge boats and sail around as I had intended. So we continued our journey around the ice field toward the north as we had begun it. The general direction of the shoreline at this point was from the southwest toward the northeast. The traveling was fairly good, and we made good time for about a week, and then our trouble commenced. The entire surface was covered to an unknown depth with volcanic ashes. The surface formation was evidently new, but careful examination revealed the fact that this covered an older formation of very considerable thickness. Our soundings, owing to the precipitous character of the coastline, were not satisfactory. 
but taken in connection with my observations as to the motions of the ice field i came to the conclusion that it was frequently grounding on the tops of submarine mountains if this is true it will probably hasten the breaking up when the ice becomes rotten under the influence of continuous sunshine having satisfied myself on these points we started on our return trip and but for the difficult nature of the surface and the frequent necessity for road making we would have been with you by the time the sun made his appearance before we reached the ship it had been definitely settled that after a short rest Battel should continue his explorations toward the western borders of the ice field and time the expedition so as to return to the ship before there was any immediate danger from the thaw we had come to the conclusion that we were floating in an open sea and it was our intention to press on for the north when the ice went to pieces and some phenomena that we in common with other explorers had observed led to the opinion that we would find land and not unlikely a habitable country around the pole since the sun had made his appearance flocks of ducks brants and geese coming from the north were quite numerous when killed we found them fat and juicy and their crops were often filled with a species of grain resembling rice which seemed to indicate that they came from a temperate climate we now began to confidently expect that when the ice field went to pieces we would find the country which produced this grain the northern home of these flocks of birds we argued that the six months and more of continued sunshine at the pole would necessarily produce a mild if not a warm climate for the greater portion of the year we held that refraction would secure perhaps as much as seven months of sunshine at the pole and add to this the long twilight and the aurora preventing absolute darkness the immediate vicinity of the pole might be in many respects a most desirable climate of one thing we felt sure and that was that those flocks of ducks and geese that had come from the north had been well fed with grain that must have grown in a productive country when we came to the ice mountain that covered the ship captain battelle turned to the north saying i believe that this is the route to the mouth of the tunnel yes that is true replied captain gano but let us go by the way of jack's observatory which is directly over the ship all right said battelle lead on i want to see the observatory anyway and it is probably no further over the mountain than it is around it even if the travelling may be a little more laborious we offered no explanation as to our elevator and in a few minutes we were in the observatory under the canopy of sailcloth which protected it from the rays of the sun well this is a cosy place said battelle as he seated himself upon one of the extemporized cushioned seats with which it was furnished it is said i but i am more interested in seeing how leif and eric are getting along in their coveted task of transferring the sledges to this side of the ridge so saying i went directly to the large telescope which we had left bearing upon the gap battelle had chosen for a crossing place a glance was enough and in reply to a questioning look from battelle i said both sledges are on top and they are preparing to let them down on this side come and see for yourself i believe that our norwegian sailors are equal to anything they are willing to undertake i believe you are right said battelle as he took his place at the telescope there he continued they are letting the sledges down the steep incline fully loaded from the progress they are making they will be here in a few hours with everything in ship shape for the expedition toward the west 
That rests me so that I will not mind clambering down to the mouth of the tunnel. Why go by way of the tunnel? asked Captain Gano. Just take your seat on that divan, and there need be no clambering down. Yes, I said, and just let me share the seat with you and let the captain act as chief of transportation and take command of the expedition down to the ship. He did as he was directed with a puzzled look. Captain Gano took hold of the rope while I turned on the light and we began to drop down toward the ship. Well, you have got things fixed up in grand style, said Battel. Who would have expected a few weeks ago that we would now be descending into the interior of an iceberg on a grandly upholstered elevator with the stern captain of the Ice King as our elevator boy? Is not this putting on a little too much style for these regions of eternal ice? Not at all, I responded. I hold, you know, that every human being is justly entitled to the very best that his own labor can produce. But this arrangement for facilitating our access to the outer world is the product of the labor and skill of our Norwegian sailors. They had the observatory almost completed before they revealed their designs to anyone but Houston. Then, said Battelle, if that is the sort of men they are, I think they had better remain with the ship. I have thought of proposing to take them out with me on our western expedition and leave some of the other men to take their place here. I could hardly consent to part with our Norwegians, even for a few days, said Captain Gano. Since I have discovered their ability, I want them on the ship in case of emergencies. I would not hesitate if it was necessary to place them in command. The quickness of perception and general reliability they have shown almost persuade me that Jack is right, and that under some circumstances the highest qualities may be developed among the most lowly. And it may be, said Battelle, that as Houston intimated, Leif and Eric have some great purpose in life, and under such influences as Jack would like to place around the common sailors, many of them might develop qualities of a high order. I have thought much of Jack's pet hobby. On this last expedition, I have realized more than ever the importance of having men of lofty characters in the capacity of common sailors, if such a thing is possible. And it is possible, I added, and whether it is possible or not, it is our duty to ourselves and to humanity to do everything in our power to inspire all with whom we come in contact, with broader views of life and nobler aspirations for the future. Well, said Captain Gano, it is certainly not my intention to antagonize your exalted idea of our duty toward our fellow beings. It is an ennobling thought to dwell upon, but whether it will ever be possible for us to do much for our sailors in this way or not, it is clearly impossible to do anything immediately, and surely Captain Battelle wants one good sleep in his own bed before he starts on another expedition. So I propose that we now retire to our quarters for rest. We certainly need it, and there is no duty pressing upon us to prevent it. We acted upon the captain's suggestion as soon as we could reach our cabins. In a few minutes I was sleeping soundly and did not awake until the gong gave notice that breakfast was ready. The crew had returned with the sledges, and after a nap were now ready for the first meal on shipboard that they had taken for over a month. Captain Battelle had completed preparations for his expedition to the west, and once more the officer's mess was complete, and while we enjoyed our repast, we discussed plans for the future. As we arose from the table, Battelle took me by the hand and said, "'You may keep a sharp lookout for me after the first of July.' 
By that time, we ought to be able to reach open water on the west and return. If we can launch the sledges, it is my intention to sail around the ice to the north, and if possible, return along the seam which marks the channel through which we were moving when we were entombed beneath these bergs. I've already made use of your observatory to make a sketch of the most prominent objects toward the west and north. I apprehend no trouble. Of course, we will have channels of water to contend with before we return. But as our sledges make excellent boats, they are as likely to expedite as to obstruct our movements. I need not caution you to keep up your observations and note everything that has a bearing on our situation. I will do the same and together we cannot fail to secure a fund of valuable information. He bade us goodbye and at once departed. I repaired to the observatory, and through my glass watched the sledges until they disappeared from view in the distance. It was now the 20th of April, and it would be two months and a half before we expected the return of the exploring party, and if it met with no mishap, there was ample time for an extended tour around the ice field. I anticipated great results from the observations that might be made. Captain Battelle had left us with three of his party, who seemed the least able to bear the fatigue of the long journey over the ice which he contemplated. This was a valuable addition to the force left with the ship, and at the same time relatively strengthened the exploring party, as it relieved them of the prospective danger of being compelled to take care of disabled comrades. The weather was favorable, and soon the rays of the sun began to slowly but surely change the surface of the ice. I watched the process with constantly increasing interest. If we were ever to escape from our imprisonment, our release must come as a result of the thaw. Hence, I came to regard the little rivulets that were forming in every direction, and usually disappearing in a short distance through some crevice, as our saviors. If the progress kept on with sufficient vigor, the ice field was sure to break up before we were again locked in the embrace of an Arctic winter, and we would have an opportunity to escape. At last, the sun had reached his highest altitude, and the time had come when we might expect the return of Battelle. The thaw had progressed rapidly, and the ice was becoming rotten, and with the first storm would probably go to pieces. But the weather was serene, and there was no immediate danger. The 1st of July had come and gone, and Battelle was still absent. The thaw, under the continuous rays of the sun, was accelerated, and I began to fear the breakup would come before his return with the larger part of the crew. This might prove to be fatal to all our hopes. I felt that we sorely needed Captain Battelle with his experience in the navigation of these frozen seas. I now began to dread the thaw as much as I had been inclined to welcome it two months before. I continued my observations with more interest, if possible, than ever. The motions of the ice field puzzled me. We seemed to be slightly oscillating from one side to the other of longitude 180 degrees, but with a frequent motion toward the north. I spent most of my time in the observatory, more on the lookout for some indication of the return of Captain Battelle than for any other purpose. This interest was shared by every member of the crew, and we established regular watches for this one purpose, so that there was always someone at the telescope. Captain Gano and myself took the first watch, Pat O'Brien and Houston the second, and Leif and Eric the third. So the entire 24 hours were occupied in the lookout for Battelle. 
In addition to this, we made several expeditions to the north and west for many miles. While we learned that the traveling was very toilsome, we discovered no reason why the exploring party should not be able to return as long as the ice field remained unbroken. It was true that the expedition might have reached a section where the thaw had destroyed the solidity of the ice, but it was well equipped for such a contingency as the sledges could readily be converted into boats. We tried in vain to figure out the cause of Captain Battelle's delay. The ice was becoming more rotten every day and our suspense became more and more painful. We had almost despaired of his return, when, through my glass, I observed what seemed to be a human being, directly west of us, slowly struggling along over the rotten, slushy surface of the ice. I called the attention of Captain Gano to my discovery, and after a careful scrutiny of the object, he exclaimed, That is certainly a man. It must be Battelle, or one of his men returning alone. And, he paused, and then added hastily, he is scarcely able to walk, and falls down from sheer exhaustion. We must go to his relief at once. And turning to Mike Gallagher, who was present, he said, hurry down to the ship, and tell O'Brien to summon a relief party with a stretcher. Bring my medicine case with restoratives for an exhausted man. Tell Houston to explain the situation to Leif and Eric. Make all the haste possible, and meet us at the mouth of the tunnel. Mike started down on the elevator at once to deliver these orders, while Captain Gano and myself went down the winding way on the west side. At the mouth of the tunnel, we were joined by the relief party. Leif and Eric carried the stretcher, while Pat O'Brien, Paul Houston, and Mike Gallagher each had a parcel containing something intended for the relief of an exhausted man. The medicine case and some warm blankets were on the stretcher. The ice field in this direction spread out before us into a vast plain, but the exact spot where we had observed the approaching man was hidden from view by a number of hummocks, and we took these for our guide. As soon as we reached the nearest and highest of these elevations, I climbed to the top and carefully scanned the plain beyond. Several minutes elapsed without discovering any indication of the object of our search, when not more than a mile away, I saw through my glass the head and shoulders of a man arise above the surface. For a moment he seemed to support himself on his hands, and then dropped back out of sight. I carefully noted the location, and we then hurried on. In a few minutes we came to a channel in the ice that had been worn out by a stream of water. A little to one side, a man was lying on the bottom as if dead. We called to him, but he did not move. Leif and Eric sprang into the channel and lifted him out. It was Captain Battelle, and he was entirely unconscious. We could see now that he had been trying with all his strength to lift himself out of the channel, which was not over four and a half feet in depth by six or seven in width. When I saw him from the summit of the ice hummock, he was doubtless making the last effort to climb out that his exhausted energies would permit. We had arrived just in time to rescue him from certain death. As he lay upon the stretcher, unconscious and scarcely breathing, in fancy I pictured the trials through which he must have passed. His worn-out boots and tattered clothing, his sunken eyes and pinched features, all indicated more than words could express his terrible struggle for life against the combined forces of cold and hunger. True, it was not freezing weather but the water through which he had been compelled to wade was ice-cold, 
and the bed upon which he rested must have been a melting ice hummock all these things were evident from the environments and did not need to be stated in words in order to be understood and appreciated while he alone could give us the particulars we were already familiar in a general way with his experiences traveling on foot over the fast melting ice and almost without food for weeks and possibly months while no physician had been engaged for this expedition it was because captain gano was well qualified by education and experience to fill the place as occasion might require and among the stores of the ice king there was an ample supply of medicines surgical instruments and appliances of all kinds the captain was very averse to being classed as a physician and yet his knowledge of medicine surgery and practice would have enabled him to aspire to the highest rank in the profession hence he at once took charge of the patient with the readiness and skill of an experienced practitioner and soon he had him as comfortable as dry clothing a warm bed and appropriate restoratives could make him the patient did not regain consciousness but he was soon breathing naturally and apparently enjoying a sound and refreshing sleep end of chapter four part one recording by colleen mcmahon